Finance and History. The EABH Podcast. Looking for precedents from the exciting world of financial history. Follow us on bankinghistory.org. Hello everybody, welcome. This time we are going to talk about uh, Bretton Woods. I'm Hugo Banziger, the chairperson of the European Association for Banking History. And I have the great pleasure and honor to interview today Professor Barry Eichengreen, who has just recently finished a paper on the subject. Barry is the George and Helen Party Professor of Economics and Political Science at the University of California, Berkeley. He's a research associate at the National Bureau for Economic Research a research fellow at the Center for Economic Policy Research. Barry publishes uh, actively and contributes to the contemporary policy debate and publishes widely on the history and current operation of the international monetary and financial system. He is the author of some of economics history's most classical texts, such as Golden Fetters, The Gold Standard, and The Great Depression, Global Imbalances and the Lessons of Bretton Woods, Hall of Mirrors, The Great Depression, The Great Recession, and his newest book is In Defense of Public uh, Debt. Barry, you just finished a paper, Bretton Woods After 50. Where are you going to publish it and what's going the gist of the matter in this paper? The paper was... Uh, commissioned for a mini symposium to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the end of the Bretton Woods system, or more precisely, the 50th anniversary of the decision taken by President Richard Nixon and his advisors to close the gold window to suspend the convertibility of the dollar into gold at a fixed price, one of the central elements of the Bretton Woods system. The paper tries to put that event in context and argue that in some sense, the Bretton Woods uh, system was doomed to fail or doomed to end. It was a creature of its time and times change. So I use that insight also to try to look to the future of the international monetary system. Barry, could you go back a bit uh, into the context of how Bretton Woods emerged? As I understand, Bretton Woods was part of a package. So we had the United Nations, then we had the creation of the IMF, the World Bank, the GATT institution, and Bretton Woods were basically all of the same design. So what's the context? Why has Bretton Woods been created the way it is? What are the lessons learned put into that system? In a sense... The Bretton Woods Agreement in 1944 was a second effort to reform or reconstruct the international monetary and financial system. So there'd been a first effort after World War I that proved unsuccessful. That was an attempt, if you will, to turn the clock back and reconstruct the international monetary order along pre-World War I lines, along classical gold standard lines ignoring the fact that circumstances had changed, that international competitive positions had changed, the political preconditions that had allowed the gold standard to work, relatively limited electoral franchise, for example, had changed as a result of of World War I. So the reconstructed system collapsed in the Great Depression of the 1930s. Come the end of 
World War II, or, or really in 1944, a bit before the end of World War II, there was another attempt with a recognition that turning back the clock in and of itself was not a viable strategy. So the Bretton Woods Agreement, as you said, was part of a broader effort on the part of the United States and its allies to establish a set of institutions to govern trade and payments and development finance on a global scale. So it's important to observe, as you did, that the IMF and the World Bank were and are United Nations institutions. They're part of the broader UN structure. They're under the umbrella of the United Nations. Uh, that effort was spearheaded by the United States. You could say it was simplified by the fact that the United States had disproportionate economic and financial power and leverage during and immediately after the war. The enemy powers, Germany and Japan, were not present at the Bretton Woods Conference held during the war. The Soviet Union was, but it didn't become integral part of the IMF or the Bretton Woods system once the war concluded. Is it possible to summarize in a few sentences what is different on the Bretton Woods than the pre-war system that collapsed in the Great Depression? In a few words, pegged exchange rates could be adjusted. So the adjustable peg, so-called, was one of the innovations of Bretton Woods. Number two, controls on international capital flows were maintained as governments were authorized to maintain them on, under the Bretton Woods Agreement, which was quite different from the free capital mobility that had characterized the classical gold standard. And third, there was a international organization, the IMF, charged with overseeing the operation of, uh, of the system, which uh, eventually acquired something of an international lender of last resort role. In your view, did these uh, adjustment mechanisms, did they work? They did work for a time. They worked for at most a couple of decades. So the Bretton Woods system with convertibility on current account, in other words, free access to currencies to finance trade, only really came into operation in 1958. 14 years after the Bretton Woods Agreement. And then the system collapsed in 1971-73. So for a relatively short period of a decade and a half, maybe a little bit longer, depending on how you define things, the system did work. It did support the steady expansion of trade and the expansion of foreign lending as well. The third quarter of the 20th century was a period of strong economic growth worldwide. And I think the successful operation of the Bretton Woods system was part of that. I remember from that time that uh, President Charles de Gaulle wanted uh, the French gold reserves back. The British pound had to adjust its exchange rate. Were this part of what you just described? This is the other side of the coin. The Bretton Woods era was one of economic stability, exchange rate stability, and financial stability, few banking and financial crises, in other words, compared to what had come before. 
and compared to what came after, but everything was not copacetic. There were problems and disputes. So there were a series of pound sterling crises in 1949, arguably in 1956 at the time of the Suez crisis, and in 1967, there were disputes between France and the United States over the role of the dollar in the operation of this system. So only the United States had effectively abolished all controls on international capital flows, making the dollar freely convertible into gold, allowing the dollar to assume a dominant role in the operation of the system, something that Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, the French finance minister in 1965, dubbed the dollar's exorbitant privilege, something that Charles de Gaulle in those years where he was prime minister didn't like at all. What led then eventually to the breakdown of Bretton Woods? You just described that these adjustment mechanisms created conflict and maybe were not as perfect as they could have been. But at the end, it failed and Nixon had to call the shots on Bretton Woods. What, in your view, were the reasons that this then eventually occurred? As I described before, capital controls were really central to the operation of the system. They allowed governments and central banks to keep their exchange rates stable, but also to target domestic economic objectives. Interest rates didn't have to be exactly equalized across countries as they do in systems where the exchange rate is fixed and capital flows are free. Over time, international financial markets began to recover from the disruptions of the 1930s and World War II. Domestic financial regulation began to be relaxed. So governments and central banks were suddenly faced with hard choices. Did they choose to keep the exchange rate stable and abandon other domestic objectives or pursue those domestic objectives, risking exchange rate stability? So you see this trade-off in the center country, the United States in the late 1960s and early 1970s with increased public spending on the Great Society, increased public spending on uh, the Vietnam War, which is associated with losses of gold by the US Monetary Authority and mounting doubts about the long-term stability of the $35 an ounce price of gold that the U.S. was committed to maintaining. So I think that's part of the story. In addition, there were intrinsic instabilities in the operation of the system. So as the global economy grew, central banks and governments around the world wanted to hold more international reserves as a buffer stock to enable them to intervene in the foreign exchange market as necessary, they could hold gold or they could hold dollars. It was hard to get one's hands on more gold because the supply globally was relatively inelastic. It came mainly from South Africa and the Soviet Union, two countries that not 
all governments wanted to partner with at the time, if you will. And lacking the ability to obtain more gold, governments and central banks had to accumulate US dollars as foreign reserves. There came a point in the 1960s where foreign official holdings of dollars exceeded US gold reserves. So that created the danger of the equivalent of a bank run in which foreign central banks and governments scrambled to get a hold of US gold before other governments and central banks did the same. So my teacher, Robert Triffin, was very concerned about this issue and this problem that inevitably as the world economy grows, confidence in the convertibility of the dollar will diminish. That became known as the Triffin Dilemma. In a nutshell, you're saying that the stock of gold could not be expanding as fast as necessary due to the economic growth in Western Europe and in the United States. Is this the core of what you're saying? It is one of the internal contradictions of the Bretton Woods system, indeed. What I'm saying is that there were systematic causes of the demise of the system, the Triffin Dilemma, and there were also policy choices by the United States and other countries participating in the system that contributed to that collapse. That's really interesting. I never thought uh, about the end of Bretton Woods this way. I thought it was a, a problem because of the domestic inflation in the United States, but uh, that with the stock of gold not being expandable as fast as economic growth that makes a lot of sense. If we move a step forward, Bretton Woods got abandoned uh, in 1971 unilaterally by the United States. Before that event, a lot of economists feared that money that is not packed to gold or to another currency, which is a stabilizer, will become fiat money that can be easily manipulated and that uh, will eventually evaporate in high inflation. None of that actually I've observed. So how do you look at this argument at that time? Did we get it wrong when we said uh, a currency must be pegged? Yes, I think we did get it wrong. And um, we didn't realize that there were other stable anchors for monetary policy besides the exchange rate. So it's important here to remember that there was considerable exchange rate instability and inflation in the 1970s and in some countries into the 1980s. It took until the end of the 1970s with the installation of Paul Volcker as Federal Reserve Chair for the US to bring down inflation. It took until 1979 for European countries to figure out what to do to establish the European monetary system, which was kind of a mini or regional Bretton Woods, an, an echo of the Bretton Woods system. It took until the end of the 1980s for the inauguration of what came to be known as the Great Moderation. So sometime after 1987, business cycle fluctuations seemingly diminished and spikes of inflation seemingly diminished. And what happened was that countries discovered alternative monetary anchors, such as inflation targeting. But 
that was a learning process that took the better part of two decades. I remember the high inflation time quite well in Switzerland. I was uh, at university that time, and um, there were a lot of recipes uh, from price controls to uh, detailed uh, labor force management. And at the end, it was um, the anchor of inflation targets that uh, got it under control. That's really interesting. When we look back into this transition period after the end of Bretton Woods, one of the things that I noticed uh, as a banker to manage a big balance sheet was that we got a, an enormous number of crises after the end of Bretton Woods. Not immediately, but 10 years later, we had the Latin American debt crisis that became basically an emerging market debt crisis. Then we had the Kila crisis under Clinton. Then we had the Asian currency crisis. And then we had the dot-com bubble that burst. Uh, a little bit later, we had the great financial crisis in 2006. In terms of crisis and uh, sovereign debt problems and bank crashes, uh, it was way more volatility than we have seen under Bretton Woods. How do you relate the end of Bretton Woods to this phenomenon? Is it a function of it or is it something that has been overlooked? One way of reposing your question, Hugo, mm -hmm. is are financial crises more of a problem under PEG or flexible exchange rates? I think the literature doesn't provide a clear answer to that question. Different people have studied it and reached different answers. My own view is that the exchange rate regime is not the most important contributor to crisis risk. International capital flows play a role. Capital flow surges, followed by sudden stops lacks financial regulation, which enables credit booms that come to an uncomfortable end. To my mind, those are the key factors. And I think you can have capital flow surges and sudden stops under any exchange rate regime. You can have inadequate financial regulation under any exchange rate regime as well. So it is striking that the third quarter of the 20th century, the Bretton Woods period, was one when there were almost no banking crises, for example. But that was because banks were so tightly regulated, not because of the exchange rate regime per se. I did make an argument before about how one of the things that allowed exchange rates to remain so stable under Bretton Woods was that banks and financial markets were tightly regulated and capital flows were limited by controls. So these different dimensions are not entirely unrelated to one another. But I think the problem of financial instability that we live with today that we've experienced for the last couple of decades is not centrally a story about the exchange rate regime narrowly defined. One of the things that puzzled me in my career was uh the importance of the dollar of the Bretton Woods. Until I was in charge of treasury of uh, Deutsche Bank, I thought Bretton Woods diminished the role of the dollar. And uh, in the great financial crisis, I just saw the opposite. So having dollars and having sufficient dollar was the key to success, not only success, to survival. How do you make sense of that, that the dollar was so important why was that so from your perspective, even so Bretton Woods uh, was not in existence any longer? You were not alone 
you go and being surprised by the continued dominance of the dollar following the collapse of Bretton Woods. And even today, a lot of people in the early 1970s were predicting that if the United States succumbed to significant inflation following the collapse of Bretton Woods, the dollar's role would be significantly diminished. The country did succumb to significant inflation and the exchange rate did move widely and yet the dollar's role remained. So I think that's a reminder of a number of forces at work in, in the international monetary and financial system. Number one, the advantages of incumbency, that the dollar was the first mover. Number two, the importance for an international currency of having deep and liquid financial markets open to the rest of the world. Only the United States really had them. And number three, the absence of alternatives. Germany, for example, was reluctant to see wider international use of the Deutschmark. It feared capital inflows that would be inflationary. The Japanese were reluctant to see wider international use of the yen because they feared this would limit their industrial policy, room for maneuver. So there were few alternatives to the dollar then, meaning following the collapse of Bretton Woods. And I would make the same argument today that people point to the Euro and, and the Chinese renminbi as potential alternatives to the dollar. But if you count up all the AAA rated government bonds out there in the world today, they constitute the main form of international reserves held by central banks. The Euro accounts for 17% of them. The dollar accounts for a majority of them. And it's hard to get your hands on renminbi denominated bonds. So what was true then remains true today. Maybe the European Recovery Fund will change that over time. More AAA rated EU bonds. Maybe efforts by China to internationalize the renminbi. The E renminbi will change that over time, but not anytime soon, in my view. Coming back on the importance of the dollars, one of the things I remember quite well during uh, 2007, specifically a year before Lehman happened, was that uh, we were always structurally short dollars. So as a European bank, our clients paid us when they bought commodity contracts or another foreign currency, they paid us in euro, but we had to get this currency in US dollars. And later, I was also involved in Deutsche Börse, helping um, Deutsche Börse to build exchanges. We were completely unsuccessful in listing commodity products priced in euros. And uh, that's something that always puzzled me that uh, the industry didn't move into alternative exchanges with direct access to what they eventually wanted. Is that what you call uh, or described as the, the advantage of the incumbent, or is there something deeper at work? I think it's the advantage of the incumbent. I think it's the force of habit. I think there is a coordination problem that it doesn't pay to be the only trader on a new euro-based market. A bunch of agents have to move in the same direction at the same time in order for that market to be viable. I think also the fact that if Deutsche Bank is structurally short dollars, 
the fact that the Federal Reserve is, is willing to provide those dollars via swap lines with the European Central Bank and others so that the ECB can turn around and provide those dollars when they're needed, that is another important factor that has sustained the dollar's dominant role. Looking back into these uh, challenging years, one of the things I took away from it is, had it not been for Bernanke then and now also for Powell now, is the COVID crisis who made uh, dollar liquidity available to the whole world, uh, we would probably have woken up to a different place because there was no other source at the end for dollars than going to the ECB who had access to dollars through the, to the big swap lines. Do you see that the same way? I do see it the same way. And I'm reassured by the fact that the Fed appreciates that to a limited extent, it has to act as lender of last resort to the world. And I'm reassured that the Fed did this in March of 2020, when it still had a hostile US president, Donald Trump, looking over its shoulder. It still uh, nonetheless realized that it had a responsibility to the global monetary and financial system and not only to the US. You talked uh, two minutes ago about alternatives that could complement dollar in its role and mentioned China and Europe. With Europe, I was part of helping to put the rescue package for Greece together. And one thing that I noticed is that all international investors dumped their euro bonds as quickly as they could. And at the end, uh, it's basically European banks and European savers who picked it up, but no international investors. And that was also the time when the efforts of Deutsche Börse to uh, use euro as a payment in commodity exchange operation uh, collapsed because there was simply no interest in the world to do that. Do you think that has changed? The, uh, there was a lot of distrust and people thought the euro may collapse. Maybe it's never going to be a reserve currency like the US dollar. Or is that something that was transitional? I think there is still some skepticism out there about the durability, the staying power of the euro. I've always been the, the one American who believes the euro is here to stay. I like to say the reason my hair is gray is that I wrote an article back in 2007. I was commissioned to write about the breakup of the euro area, and, and I concluded it could not and would not happen under any circumstances, both because of financial considerations and political considerations. And then I got a real-time stress test with the Greek crisis. I think, again, the recovery plan for Europe, the EU's response to the COVID crisis is, is another reminder that the euro is here to stay. And that with time, Europe will build out the fiscal and political sides of its monetary house to reassure investors. I think Europeans understand the euro is here to stay, but I keep getting questions about that from US-based commentators. I think people in Asia are similarly uncertain about the euro. So that uncertainty will hamstring efforts to foster wider international use of the currency. I remember meetings with lots of American hedge funds who had in 2011, 12 short positions on the euros and speculated on its collapse. And uh, when they asked me in these meetings uh, what I thought, and I thought, 
you underestimate the euro. The euro is not just an economic project. It's a political project. And unless Europe runs out of money, that currency will stay. I think that's exactly right. Americans don't understand European politics. I've studied them a, a little bit enough to convince me the euro is a permanent innovation. You mentioned um, that the renminbi could be an alternative. How do you see that? So it's still a currency tightly where the exchange rate is tightly controlled by the People's Bank. Is, is that something conceivable? In a world where China is far and away the largest economy, engaging in the most foreign trade and foreign investment of any country or economy, it would be peculiar indeed if the currency did not play a larger international role. But I think in order for that to happen, two sets of concerns would have to be addressed. Number one, the fact that China does have capital controls that limit access to its financial markets, financial securities, and so forth, that limit the utility of its currency for cross-border transactions of various kinds. In order to relax those capital controls, China would have to move to a somewhat more flexible exchange rate. It would have to strengthen domestic financial regulation. It's moving slowly, slowly in both directions, but I don't think it will get to the destination anytime soon. So that's consideration number one, financial. Consideration number two is political. When I go to China, I like to provoke my audience by observing that every true international and reserve currency in history has been the currency of a political democracy or republic because investors are concerned about checks and balances, uh, limits on the arbitrary ability of the executive to change the monetary rules of the game and say, you no longer have access to your balances held in, in Shanghai. During the Trump administration, people worried about the international role of the dollar because of fears that Trump might attempt to arbitrarily change the rules of the game. But the same is true about the Politburo in China. How far China has to move in the direction of checks and balances, simply establish independence for the People's Bank of China, the central bank, or do more, we don't know. But it would be unprecedented for a country that was not a political democracy or didn't have a Republican form of government, a, legis um, a meaningful legislature, to have an international currency. The US is a democracy. Britain before it was a democracy. The Dutch Republic had its estates general. The city-states of Genoa, Florence, Venice were Republican city-states. China would be different. And for me, that's still hard to imagine. In 2014, I was part of a German delegation to help um, the PBOC to make the renminbi a reserve currency. And uh, we went to Beijing and we had uh, three days of workshops and we talked with them what it would take uh, from an infrastructure perspective to create a vibrant bond market that is liquid enough so that uh, the Chinese bonds could be purchased by foreigners. Uh, we talked about the derivative markets that would be necessary. We talked about the payment system that would be necessary and all these sorts of things. And the Chinese took a lot of notes and some of the more junior people told us that 
they want to make the renminbi a reserve currency within three years so that was 2014 makes it 2017 after this three days of workshop everything came to a standstill germany actually has the technology to make it happen and it was never taken up by china what really happened was around that time they had moved in the direction of relaxing restrictions on cross-border flows and domestic financial transactions. And they got a severe bout of stock market financial volatility in 2015. So in response to that, they clamped down, they prioritized domestic financial stability and uh, no longer renminbi internationalization. So the progress of the latter has continued, but much more slowly. One thing that I would like to cover as last topic is many people think that digital currencies, specifically digital central bank currency, will be a game changer and everything will become much easier and that will then resolve all these issues. What do you think about that? You would get a different answer to that depending on the age of your interlocutor. So older folks are skeptical that central bank digital currencies will will make a difference overall or specifically for cross-border transactions younger people are more sympathetic to the idea so i fall in in the skeptical camp first of all i think there are very serious logistical technical problems to be solved before cbdc's can be used in cross-border transactions by non-residents? Will Americans be permitted by the Chinese authorities to hold digital renminbi? Will they be permitted to hold them in wallets or as tokens? How How will that work? What kind of interoperability will there be between one country's central bank digital currency and another's? So there are lots of working groups thinking about these issues. And so far as I can tell, no workable solutions yet, either to the economic and political problems. Will I be able to hold E renminbi? Will you be able to hold it? And to the technical problems about how the rails and transactions between CBDCs will work. So I don't think this will have a meaningful impact on the international monetary system until those issues are worked out and i don't see them being worked out anytime soon. i'm part of the older generation too so i fully share your skepticism during the, the six years i run treasury the one thing that uh, i realized is everything is about liquidity and even today for me there are basically only three really liquid markets in terms of reserve that's the us dollar then the bonds, and then uh, the JGBs in Japan. And I think that's one of the key things. Liquidity has to be there. Barry, that was an absolutely fantastic uh, talk. Thank you so much. This was Finance and History, the EABH podcast. EABH is an independent, international, non-for-profit organization that promotes research into the history of finance, policy making, and the archives. Please join us as a member in order to support our work. You can find details online at bankinghistory.org.